This is Elizabeth Chapin with Austin Enneagram, and today we're doing chapter four in Helen Palmer's book, and I have my friend Knack here today, who is a four. We're good friends, we're neighbors, we've done some activism together, and Knack is a, an incredible jeweler and has a beautiful store with beautiful jewelry, lucky for me, right down the street, and <laughs> anyway, I'm just glad you could come today. Thank you for having me. Yes. I'm so grateful. All right. So we're just going to run through this. And um, so I'm just going to kind of read stuff. And like, we're just going to kind of be casual. And if you, you know, if you want to just, you can interrupt me or if you agree or if you want to talk about it or you okay. think it's bullshit or whatever, you know. Sounds good. So fours remember abandonment in childhood as a result they suffer from a sense of deprivation and loss. They remain steadfastly focused upon the lost love, the unavailable love, a future love, and a picture of happiness that only love can bring. So, I mean, that's something that's always said about fours, that abandonment is their core, kind of their core issue. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of feel like um, the way Suzanne talks about we're all just kind of born in our number, and I feel like we're... I feel like we're hardwired to feel abandoned, mm -hmm. whether we actually were or not. Um, I mean, I think we could have been, and some people are. Yeah. But I think it's like we're 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 hardwired to perceive abandonment. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, I think that you. It's like I think you've said before. It's the way that you receive messages mm -hmm. in the world, and so mm -hmm. in the same family where you have parents that are treating kids maybe the same way. Yeah. I'm hearing it one way and somebody else in the family's hearing it another way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. And I think that um growing up for me in Mississippi, like I thought I think I, I it felt like I was like a little submarine sending out a signal in the ocean and I was wanting like the sonar to come back, you know, and I felt like it wasn't coming back and or like I wasn't having a mirror that showed me what I was looking to see or something. But I mean, I think I almost feel like no matter where I was or who raised me, I probably would have had that going on. I don't know. Uh, decisions are based as much upon the shifting chemistry of mood as upon the perception, the perception of actual facts. Say that again. <laughs> Decisions are based as much upon the shifting chemistry of mood as upon the perception of actual facts. Which I think that's very true. I think we get accused of that quite a bit. Yeah. Our, <laughs> yeah. Goes on to say that we're kind of, if only, if only, mm -hmm. um, that our attention locks like a record needle stuck in a deep cerebral groove of this kind of wishing and longing and wanting things to be looking for the thing that's missing all the mm -hmm. time. Yes. I think especially when I was younger, mm -hmm. I think it's shifted a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but the piece that's always true is that kind of in the future. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. if I just do this, then things will be okay. Yeah. 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 So you don't, you don't find yourself looking backwards so much. You're, you're kind of trying to. I do. And I think I kind of reserve looking back for certain parts of my life. In mm -hmm. other words, like family. Mm -hmm. 
and the relationships that I feel are broken, Mm -hmm. you know, that you sort of dwell on. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to things that are everything else, pretty much, I think I'm always looking to the future Mm -hmm. to the point where I cannot enjoy what's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super true for me. She talks about kind of three types of force. She's talking about kind of a mood of depression that we have and that some fours accept it fatalistically, succumbing to prolonged periods of self-isolation. Other fours fight their depression through hyperactivity and staying constantly on the run. And still others channel their emotions through a profound artistic exploration of the shadow side of human experience. I feel like in my life it's shifted. Yeah. Like depending on what period of my life, mm-hmm. I can relate to all three of those. Yeah, I think so too. I don't feel, I mean, I think it's, I think there have definitely been parts of my life where I'm running from myself and part, which this hyperactive thing she's talking about. And mm-hmm. there's parts of my mm-hmm. life where I'm, I feel like more now I'm definitely about putting it all in my art, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I, I don't know if I've ever been super fatalistic, though. It's like just accepting myself as melancholy and just staying there. I'm not sure I have either. Although when I was younger, I could stay in that place for longer periods of time. Sure, sure. Yeah. And it felt kind of good in a there's way. There's a weird optimistic side to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do you? There's a weird optimistic yeah, side. Like I yeah. I think there's like a, a reinvention that I believe in. Mm. And so that that I feel like there's always been this side of me that knew I could take myself out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you could it, take yourself out of the melancholy. The melancholy. Uh-huh. I, and then I could do that by reinventing myself in some mm-hmm. way or starting off on a new path. Mm-hmm. I've done that different times in my life where I sort of like, maybe that's that energetic thing you were talking about where you're kind of running away from yourself mm-hmm. where I would just suddenly, okay, now it's time to make a change. And I can do all kinds of things mm-hmm. to make that change happen in a way that I think a lot of other people are afraid to do. So you can just sort of tap into that action. Mm-hmm. I've, I when think you... I've noticed that more in my relationship with Walter where uh-huh. he sees me do that and he's kind of shocked mm-hmm. at how fast I can turn things around when I need to. Yeah. Um, it's an odd thing that I didn't really realize about myself until I kind of, he was holding the mirror up to me. Do you feel like you can control it or it just happens? Oh, yeah. You can control um, it. I mean, and I right now in my life, I think maybe in similar ways to you, I, ha- I have something that keeps my focus. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I spend more time doing is diving into that art or trying to do too much mm-hmm. or just constantly adding to my plate. Mm-hmm. And so maybe there's a mix of that, like running mm-hmm. towards something and also diving into something that I really care about. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a whole lot of time to sit around and feel sorry for myself. Although I manage to fit it in sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, there's always room for dessert, right? (laughs) Uh, That's that's great. I love melancholy as a dessert. Only a four would say that. Only a four would say that, exactly. So she goes on to talk more about melancholy and saying it's like a twisted emotional refuge that springs from loss and pain. I just like those words, a twisted emotional refuge. Mm-hmm. Like depression, it stems from our perception of loss. But here, sadness is transformed into a mood of mistiness along bleak shores. <laughs> 
Fours feel intensely alive in the shifting emotional mists. Nothing is permanent because one's mood may change tomorrow. Fours live with the conviction that there was an original source of love that was taken away. I was loved once. Where did it go? I think, mm. I mean, I, I find this, this, this idea of mistiness and this, that, that we're, you know, that we're kind of like being in that misty place and that we, I also think it's interesting that if we're hardwired for this sense of lack, it could be focused on all kinds of things. Um, I think it can be focused on, you know, your family of origin or like your romantic or mm-hmm. your career mm-hmm. or just yourself. Or um, I also think it can be like this kind of spiritual quest. And I, I think that in some ways that's, I mean, it, it's it's well suited. I find like that kind of work, spiritual work, very well suited because there it is kind mm-hmm. of misty and there's no end to it and there's mm-hmm. no answer. So I feel like that's kind of a, a fun. A f- I don't know if fun's the right word, but well, like, I sort of I was sort of thinking that when you were saying that mm-hmm. there's a little bit of we know we can feel all those things, mm-hmm. so we we feel comfortable mm-hmm. feeling everything, mm-hmm. um, and I. I, I totally relate to the lack thing, mm-hmm. but then I find if I'm truly in a place where I'm, where I am being starved of something, like if that's actually what's going on, yeah, I actually have resilience to get out of it. And like, it's almost like uh, yeah. it doesn't get me down as much as what I can do to myself. I totally agree. Actually. Yeah. Like I think... I'm actually good in a situation where suddenly everybody's turned against me because mm-hmm. then that's when I have power. Not that that's necessarily something that happens, but yeah. you know what I mean? When it, yeah. when you kind of feel like I am truly in a place right now where nobody cares. Right. Um, and that feels kind of powerful. In a way, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting. It is interesting. When we get into like push-pull stuff, I wonder yeah. if any of that will, if that will kind of make sense. Um, it's almost like I calm down a little bit in that moment. Interesting. It's maybe less pressure or something. Or less maybe there's no room for me to find that on my own I don't know like there's Mm -hmm. not I think on some level I'm aware of the fact that all that sort of ruminating about what I don't have is actually my own it's it's in me it's not coming it's not real it's yeah I think it's just a it's just a program that we have playing that's complete yeah completely not true it's a I'm I'm realizing that more and more and that like you're saying I can just kind of see it and mm-hmm. step out of mm-hmm. it. I could just go, look at you telling yourself that story. Look at, you yeah. know, look at you just framing this in such a negative way or yeah. s- seeing what's wrong right now or uh-huh. focusing on what you feel sad about yeah. or worried about or blah, 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 blah. The funny yeah. thing is that when I was younger, I think where I spent a lot of my time was ruminating over what somebody had done to me, mm-hmm. like For how sure. I had been wronged. Yes. And now, I, if I'm doing it, I'm ruminating about how I'm a bad person. Mm, gosh, Like yeah. I've turned it, like yeah. I'm not, I don't really sit around in my mind and go, oh, that person, they're terrible. Yeah. I really spend more time going, oh, why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, I think fours, I think that's their energy. I, I think it's similar to a one that way. And that yeah. that's kind of where they are. I mean, it's where all the, the yucky stuff comes from. Yeah. yeah. 
a compulsive attraction to the unavailable and the usually unrecognized habit of rejecting whatever is easy to obtain. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> I look over at Walter because I'm thinking he's probably going, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's Making it unnecessarily difficult on yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it as making it difficult on yourself. But yeah, I think when things are easy, we don't trust it. We don't, yeah. I mean, as an artist, um, I don't know if you do this, but if it came easy to me, huh, probably not good yeah and that's sort of the opposite of a way of a lot of other artists think right yes like, and my friend Carrie crop um, she her kind of her little mantra is that things need to be what does she call easy and something easy and something something else that's good and she's kind of taught, effortless maybe I don't know but she's kind of taught me that I'm a little addicted to making things hard. And then I, there's something there that I need to look at and that I'm suspicious of easy. And uh, I think that's, I think that's true. And of course, we I think it's critique true. the obvious. Right. Like I, and you know, often find myself critiquing the obvious, like things that I think, oh, that was obvious. Why mm-hmm. did that person not dig deeper? Yes, for sure. For um, sure. And of course there you know, the problem with coming at things from this place of lack is that you can't necessarily mm-hmm. recognize the difference, right? Between something that is good and effortless yes, and something that's not because you're so hung up on the idea that if it's effortless, then it's not good. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a sense that the present is only a rehearsal for the future. Um, so I kind of think that fits into what you're saying earlier about like looking when real life gains start to materialize though these may be the fruits of years of anticipation and effort attention will predictably shift to that which is missing in life if you get the job you want the man if you get the man you want to be alone if you're alone you want the job and the man again attention cycles to the best uh, in what is missing and by comparison, whatever is available seems dull and valueless. Um, romantics are likely to sabotage real gains. It's, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. There's always a, there's always another level to achieve mm-hmm. in a way that makes it difficult to enjoy what you've achieved. Yeah. I mean, I think all or the, what you have or who you are yeah. with or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like all of us kind of have trouble with presence and mm-hmm. like just being, and I think that's probably the core issue for everybody, really. But um, I think, you know, we can find ourselves not even celebrating in the moment. Yes. Right. So, like, you have an art show, and then you're worried about during the art show you can't relax because you're just and oh, again, I feel I think like that, I'm not even there yeah I mean I have I, trouble I can, even being there. I think there's a lot of people that feel that way for different reasons maybe coming at it just because they're nervous or mm-hmm. but I think for fours and, and speaking for myself specifically I can find myself you know first of all I'm looking at what I didn't do right and then I'm also already thinking about the next yeah while I'm standing there in the moment of yeah. all this work that I put into yeah Or just deflecting. I feel like I'm oftentimes just deflecting whatever. The praise. Yeah, somebody, I have a friend who lately, every time she says something nice to me, I deflect it back. And she 
calls me out on it. She's like, stop doing that. Just say, I'm like, what do you want me to say? She's like, thanks. Just say, (laughs) (laughs) say, which is super hard for me to do. Um, the image of a splendid future that was to emerge through love is threatened by the fact that an actual relationship contains some very boring moments. Small quirks in a partner's presentation turn into major irritants. She is politically illiterate. She has no ear for music. How insensitive to leave a toothbrush in the glass. There is a rage at having to accommodate to someone else's tastelessness and a fierce need to protect oneself for the future reawakening through love. And I wrote, oh my God, out on the side. Like rage at having to accommodate someone else's tastelessness, I think is a core sentence for yeah. me. And I mean, it's embarrassing because it's really shitty, but it's... Yeah. I, I, and it's I, real. It's super real. Yeah. It's super real. And... Um, and then I just have to remember underneath that that it's very adjacent to three in that, and maybe even one too, in that you feel like that tastelessness is getting on you. It's like it's like it's dirty you in some way. It's getting on you yeah. somehow, and it's somehow ref- a reflection yeah. of you, and you don't want to have any part mm-hmm. of that. And so you. Well, act- I was, I've read about you know I guess heard other I think Richard Rohr a long mm-hmm. time ago. It's sort of the um, this aversion to ordinariness yes. to things that are just, you know, middle of the road or yes. basic or, yes. um, that's when I find myself having a, you know, uh, I remember growing up even and going to visit relatives in small towns where people were unsophisticated and just being like, get me out. You know, yeah. there's this, yeah. this kind of aversion that can, yeah. like you said, it can turn into rage. Yeah. Almost. It's, it's, there's uh, something that's kind of scary about it. There is because yeah. of course, then you're putting that ahead of the people. Yes. And the relationships that you have, you're making that more important. Right. And that when you realize that as a four, I think it's kind of stunning to you. Yes. That you could be that callous. Right. Um, but then, you know, I guess, uh, being empathetic towards yourself at a certain point to understand that that's like pre-programmed and you yeah. have to find a way to, to, to kind notice of it. Notice and, that. Yeah. 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 Um, true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walter. <laughs> Walter. <laughs> He's Walter. scared. Yes. Nax husband is sitting in the room with us. <laughs> so there's a presence here yeah, that we're exactly. laughing about. Yeah. Um, when it appears that intimacy may require a sacrifice of elite standards, um, fours will want to drive their partners away to force them to leave before the image of a precious and authentic relationship is corrupted by negative influence. It becomes clear that the partner is to blame. Feeling bitterly disappointed, fours will want to say the worst in order to make it perfectly clear just how much they've been let down. Once the relationship is driven back to a safe distance, the romantic will begin to miss it once again. So there's this push-pull pattern, mm-hmm. pushing away what is available and pulling for what is hard to get. Um, fours keep life at a safe arm's length, not too far away, lest the familiar edge of longing turn into black despair, but certainly not too close either. For although there is great yearning for intimacy with another, actual intimacy triggers the fear of being found 
deficient and potentially reabandoned. So I guess it, when you were talking before I even said that last piece, I was kind of already thinking that I think that push pull mm-hmm. comes from this sense of lack. Yes. Right. If mm-hmm. some, and, and then also a sense of you are, you are deficient in some way so that if somebody does really care for you that much they they must be deficient mm. because why would they, Ooh. why would they want to be with you and all your deficiencies unless there's something wrong with them? So right. Ooh, that I, that's good. push and pull, I think is part of it. It's like this whole crazy emotional dance of self, hatred in a yeah. way i mean really self-sabotage yeah. self sitting in that place of like being you know i mean i, I suppose the abandonment thing is, mm-hmm. is the big part of it but also just allowing that relationship to be fully real and mm-hmm. realized is yes. an acknowledgement that you're not deficient in some way you're worth loving right 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 so i think there's a little bit of or a lot of that yeah um, i i remember somewhat related to this when I was um, younger and going to therapy and talking about my mom, one of the things that therapists kind of, it was a big light bulb moment was they said, your mom sees herself as deficient. And so it's hard for her to imagine that her kids are anything more than that. Mm. And I, at the time, now looking back, it made me think as a four, that was probably even more real for her in a way. Mm. She's not, uh, it's not to say that she wasn't proud of us or she didn't see the great qualities that we had, mm-hmm. but there's that underlying thing of you must be carrying with you all these senses, all this deficiency mm. that I feel wow. because you're my offspring. Like it's hard wow. for them to see you as being more or separate mm. from that. Interesting. Um, so somehow that feels like there's a connection between those two things, especially as far as a four is concerned and my mom being a four, I think right. she had a really hard time feeling 100% that your, her kids weren't deficient yeah. in some way. Yeah. I mean, she'd probably be horrified to hear me say that. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that. I'm yeah. going to have to see, see if I can ca- catch myself feeling that with my own kids. Cause I'm not, I don't know. I'm going to think about that. Um, I wrote out in the margin that the yearning for me feels like the thing. So I think that I enjoy almost play acting love and intimacy and all the trappings of that and sometimes think it is intimacy even though it's just like like I'm pretend I'm not pretending but I'm kind of just, um, uh, what is the, how do I want to put it? It's like, I'm just like decorating my life and making all this stuff feel like intimacy without just almost having it. Like there's a layer there between you and the actual act of being intimate. Yeah. 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 Fours pull out all the emotional stops when abandonment looms. Um, Fours say the highs and lows of their emotional life open up an intensified level of existence that is beyond ordinary happiness, a level far richer than that for which other people seem to be willing to settle. 
there's the sense of being an alien outsider to ordinary reality, of being unique and strangely different, of being an actor who is moving through the scenes of one's own life, which I guess is kind of what I just said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To give up the suffering of a heightened emotional life would mean sacrificing the sense of being special that drama tends to generate. For a four, the prospect of becoming happy can also threaten to close access to an intense emotional world. Worst of all, there is the risk of settling for a pedestrian vision and an ordinary <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, so miserable, pedestrian, uh, or that... Oh my God. <laughs> right. But maybe maybe be, we'd rather be a little bit miserable than be pedestrian. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so I guess... I guess it's about unchaining those and realizing that you can, that if you're not miserable, it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be pedestrian. And there are, I mean, I think I've, I know there's been moments in my life where I've truly lost myself Mm -hmm. for a second. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's what it means to just be happy. Yes. You know what I mean? Just to not be, be, you're not being self-conscious for once. Yes. Right? Yes. So you're just somehow reacting in an authentic way and not being self-conscious and enjoying yourself. Yes. And you realize, oh, that's what it means to be. Content. Content. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because so much of the other time, like you said, there's a little bit of like, or a lot of, um, yeah, it sounds horrible to say play acting because it's mm-hmm. not a conscious thing. Mm-mm, no, because I mean, we're so about our authenticity, right? right and so, right. I mean, in some ways, I think we're more aware of our play acting than other people are because mm-hmm. of our, because we're so concerned about authenticity. You know, mm-hmm. we're constantly trying to drill down to what's authentic about ourselves. Right. Whereas a lot of other people don't even concern themselves with it. And I yeah. think we're always aware when other people are play acting. Yes. And we assume they must know they are too, <laughs> but they may not because they're not really that. They don't really make that that distinction between play acting and authenticity, almost. Huh. Like, think about a three, right? Is right. a good example of... I sort of feel like they're performative a lot of times. I feel like they're performative, and they... I feel like Alabelle tells me that she kind of knows she's doing it, but I think it's hard for her to catch herself. Right, because for them, it's kind of who they are. It's yeah. not a... Um, in fact, a lot of times I feel like people who you would perceive as fours are actually threes play acting as fours. A hundred percent. You know? Um, what, uh, what's his name? The five teacher. Uh, Hudson. Rizzo and Hudson. Uh, Russ Hudson. He's, he said that recently. He said that he feels like right now the world is filled with threes. He said the world is filled with millennial threes who want to be fours. Yeah. So true. It's so true. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's true, but it feels it feels it true. feels that way, yeah. Yeah. Then he like she tells a story about this statement was given by a man who traveled around the world for ten years in search of the perfect companion. At different points in his journey, he idealized radically different types of women, both for their physical appeal and for certain qualities of being that he attributed to the culture in which he found himself. Predictably, as he would begin to fall in love with one of his women, he would also begin to miss the special qualities of the rest. <laughs> at the time, uh, at the time that he gave this statement, he had made millions of dollars as an importer and was totally preoccupied with his continuing search for a wife. 
And then he says, I asked my mother if she breastfed me, and she said, yes, she did for a while. My guess is that I had satisfaction as a baby, and then one day it was missing, which is, incidentally, the same way that I feel treated by her. She's there for me, and then she's not. That's become like a life stance. I was happy once. Where did it go? For my whole life, I've been in search of it. Where did it go? Yet when people ask what I'm missing in life and what it is I think I'm seeking, it doesn't place itself as seeking that thing or that person or that money. I'm searching for it. That feeling of connection with something wonderful that is always hidden and always out of reach. So I feel like that gets to kind of what we were talking about earlier with the mistiness. Mm-hmm. Like it's not necessarily, it could be a woman or a man or a money or art or fame or whatever, but more likely it's it's just some other, it's some thing, unnameable, unattainable, unattainable unnameable mm-hmm. thing. Um, also think this gets, it shows you how we're just hardwired to feel this way. I mean, how bizarre that he had this thought about his breast, his breastfeeding and his mother. And like, it's just like he just latched. On that's just a story he latched onto. Yeah. And it's kind of doesn't really matter. It's just that he's a four. And so he mm-hmm. perceives it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hearing that, it makes me even see my own stories as stories more than ever. Uh-huh. Because that would have never occurred to me, like that story. Mm-hmm. But somehow that that makes my story seem ridiculous too. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. To know that you just kind of latch onto something that silly, like breastfeeding or not breastfeeding. or Yes, yes. Um, you know, like I, I do find myself idealizing certain periods of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now reading, hearing that, it makes mm-hmm. me think, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. I don't know if I thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I'd ever heard this idea that we had happiness and we lost it. Right. I didn't, I knew it was a sense of longing and lacking, but I didn't yeah. ever think of it that way before. I don't know if I, I don't know if I thought of it that way before. I don't really think of it as that I had happiness and lost it. I think I've, as long as I can remember <laughs> being alive, I've been longing. Yeah, me so, too. Me too. <laughs> um, there is often a feeling of rage at having been deprived, of anger mm-hmm. at the ab- abandoning parent who has caused such grief when others mm-hmm. have been given more. Mm-hmm. This anger is likely to appear as biting sarcasm, as a need to verbally cut others down, mm-hmm. to even the score for having been so badly hurt. Mm-hmm. More often than not, there is no practical opportunity to get angry at someone who has either vanished or is likely to withdraw under fire. As a result, a romantic's anger is usually directed inwardly as an intense self-criticism for not being worthy enough to have merited love. Mm-hmm. Um, this inwardly directed criticism makes force feel helpless and produces long periods of inaction. I think that I think it's interesting to think of like our doing repression being kind of linked to this helplessness, which is linked to our self, you know, criticism or not our non-worthiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turning it on yourself, which is what I described earlier. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And um, and this like sarcasm and verbally cutting mm-hmm. others down. Mm-hmm. I've talked in the in some of my podcasts about how 
I've been calling it unspecializing people. So I think mm-hmm. I catch myself being the meanness that I have in me is because I think it comes from me feeling that if someone else is special, I'm not special. I think, I think so. It's embarrassing mm-hmm. to say, but mm-hmm. our, our, the, our envy pieces of yes. others that are more special that right. we perceive as more special than we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, Fortunately, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think, do you think it's, Maybe it's easy to hang it on the abandoning parent or yeah. all these stories that we have about yeah. it not working out for us instead of just realizing that we're perpetuating this ongoing story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there could be truth to what we feel or think, yeah. um, but I think what we do is we dwell on it mm-hmm. and we don't sort of see that it's sort of we're harming ourselves or mm-hmm. we may see it, but it comforts us in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because we feel that we're deficient in some way, it doesn't occur to us. Like I can remember growing up, I never really told my, I never told anybody what my needs were. It Mm. wasn't something that I ever did. And so, Mm. um, I would often wait for my parents. I I never asked for anything. So they would have to give it to me Mm -hmm. and I would, Notice my siblings did ask for things. Right. An interesting thing was I was never jealous of that or it never bothered me because it never occurred to me that I deserved what they were getting. Interesting. So it was a, it was a very strange, that's where I think that lack thing was ingrained in me. It was almost mm-hmm. like I didn't deserve to ask for anything. Mm-hmm. So, and I also did that because I, I don't know if this is related. This might be just getting into psychotherapy, but, um, I, I would, and I would be aware of what they didn't want me to do. And so then I wouldn't do it. I was yes. so in tune with that. Same here. So I knew that they didn't want me to ask for anything. So I didn't ask for anything. Right. Right. Um, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but it's somehow related to that, you know, sense of lack, mm-hmm. sense of deficiency. But then do, I, I wonder too, if like, I wonder how much, we kind of comply with that so that we can continue telling ourselves the story. Maybe. You know, I wonder. I hope not. <laughs> but I, I I'm think, sure there's, I'm sure there so. is some of that. I yeah. kind of think so. It's yeah. like we're attached to, like if you keep playing the victim, mm-hmm. then you keep getting, you keep getting to have all these feelings, um, and which keeps you having the feeling special or feeling mm-hmm. like you have, I was very comfortable with that, I think. Yeah. So maybe that we are comfortable as fours with that. Yeah. Um, I think it's certainly less who I am today. Yeah. You know, but I still do it. Yeah. No, I, I, I still do it. I still do it too. Yeah. Hopefully we're just more aware when we're doing it. Yeah. Well, I've actually become a lot more aware of it in even the smaller things that I do having been with Walter. Mm-hmm. Because he's not that way. Right. Um, I mean, he's actually more likely to subvert his needs to me. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that to people that he doesn't love. Whereas I can right. find myself subverting my needs to people that I don't love and who don't right. give a rat's ass about me either. Right? Same. So, yes. so I'm doing it to make them feel comfortable. Um, I'm, you know, and I... Mm. 
as a four, like you can see a two doing that. But do you two... do you think like do you think that it's possible that we do it to people who don't love us because in a way we're giving away our energy to the unavailable or to the un. It's like we're putting all of that in the wrong place. And therefore, we get to perpetuate this kind of like problematic story, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's that's probably a lot more of it than I want to admit. I probably have a more noble. <laughs> I, mean, I want to think of it more noble. But I, but I also think maybe what I've, at least who I perceive myself now as this sort of, um, uh, what is it? Counter type four, mm-hmm. where I like keep working harder mm-hmm. to deal with those things rather than like what I find myself doing is just taking on more mm-hmm. of other people's work in order not to offend them or to have that be a problem with them. And so I've found them. I've I've become comfortable with just okay. Then I'll do it. I'll work through it. I'll I'll make everybody feel okay about the situation by me doing the work. Um, hmm. And so I think that uh, probably partly so I can feel like the victim, maybe. I mean, I, I, just... hate, to, I hate to think that that's what I'm thinking because I, I haven't been aware of that piece of it. Right. I have to think about that some more. I do, I do too. I mean, I've been thinking about it lately just because I had a friend tell me that I gave my energy away to people who weren't asking for it. And so I just started trying to pay attention to where I was mm-hmm. offering myself. And I start, I'm trying to pay attention to, I guess what you would call it, not unilateral energy. Like, let's have, you know, let's have energy that's flowing two ways. And that's where you offer like it. Like collaborative energy. Co- collaborative. To, I'll yeah. just do it myself. Or, yeah. Right. That's a, that's a good way of putting it because I've, I've thought that consciously before, why do I have a hard time working with somebody else where we're giving equal amounts, mm-hmm. where it gets done, delegating yeah. all those things. It's very difficult for for I think. Yeah. It's like for a lot of people, it's just, that's just like healthy space. <laughs> it's just normal. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm always very know. impressed by people that just know how to, to delegate and collaborate mm-hmm. and, and they can identify who can do what. And yeah. That is harder for me. Yeah, and it is for me too. She talks a lot about depression, gradually eliminating outside contact, having a conviction that the situation will not change, refusing help. Uh, a story in the book is a person saying that you go over it and over it and over it. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to understand the intricacies of all the phases of what you've been through, which makes me so preoccupied with past mistakes that I've been oblivious to some real promising love affairs. She, she was kind of referring to her divorce that had been 18 years ago. Melancholy is a mood that elevates the life of an abandoned outsider to a posture of unique temperamental sensitivity. I think that's like so gross. It's really gross. It's really gross. Like uh, the idea of de- like depression being something that we're attached to because it feels special, basically. Do you are do you feel like you're a ruminator or that you oh, yeah. yeah and that you I, go def- over things in the past? Yeah. yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Um, I would say what would have been more, you know, having 
periods of depression when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I don't really have that. Depression is not really the way I would describe it. Now it's just more finding myself ruminating. I think I've gotten so used to it mm-hmm. that I probably don't realize how much I'm ruminating compared to other people. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of just becomes it's a part of my life. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it changed where I used to ruminate more about what others had done to me. Mm-hmm. And now I ruminate more about what I did. Yes. I turned it more inwards. I think part of that, um, you know, it doesn't sound like it would be, but part of that is a little bit of a healthier step forward and that mm-hmm. I'm not caught up in trying to, 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 I'm not caught up in, in the blame game. Mm-hmm. And I'm not caught up in trying to explain what's wrong with other people and why they did it. Right. Now it's a little bit more like, you know, or it's a lot more, yeah, blaming myself, but also just putting focus more on what I can do as opposed yeah. to what other people need to do or not do. Yes. Um, it's the only thing you can there do is, anything about. Yes, right. And so there <laughs> right. is something healthier about it. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, the rumination, the thing of, of not letting, not moving on quicker. Yeah. Um, it's not healthy, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a huge, I do it. I do it yeah. all the time. I think I can get caught up in both, like what you're talking about. I can be really hard on myself and ruminate about everything I'm doing wrong, and I can be really hard on other people. Me too. And, I mean, and, I didn't want to make it sound like I don't do the other part. I just less than I yeah, used to. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope less. I'm I try. I'm trying to catch. I'm trying to catch it when I get into a, gr- a rut of mm-hmm. doing that and just like stop and say, look what, look what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like getting fixated on a particular person. Yeah. That's when I've noticed, okay, it's gone too far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fun times. Fun times. <laughs> um, let's see. Melancholy is also based in yearning casts ordinary events into the dimensions of the aesthetic. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yearning takes on the quality of search and depression is transformed into a poetic appreciation for the human condition. Melancholy evokes the sense of being young. This is a four talking Mm -hmm. and wrapping a cloak of invisible drama around myself. You never just walked. You walked with the swish of the cloak you didn't walk for pleasure. It was for the feel of the costume and the electric air and the stranger who was walking towards you mm-hmm. who would change your life forever. At home, I felt like a victim, but the sense of being abused got ennobled into a fictionalized, dramatic character. She got to put on her cloak and her magic and was not interested in fun or being happy because she sought the extraordinary instead. I remember walks where the image of a flying bird would stay inside me for a mile or a wet flower would become reason enough to go on for one day. Melancholy is a place I choose to be. It's the place of making your life an artistic experience. And although it is centered around the search for something yet to come, it is the search that makes me happy. So that's like one person's very specific language, but mm-hmm. I thought I thought I particularly resonate with making your life an artistic experience, and sometimes making um, 
rather absurd choices <laughs> so that you can so that that can so that it can feel that way for you for me yeah um i mean i certainly think people around us would see <laughs> a lot of the choices that we make as infinitely impractical right um interestingly i think that's i the person that that person was describing i can relate to that person when i was younger yes me too i very much have moved on from a lot of that Mm -hmm. i've become a much more pragmatic person Mm. and i think just by necessity Mm -hmm. maybe i've also always been um a high functioning for if that makes sense. that sort of sounds like a high functioning alcoholic but it's sort of like it's sort of it sort of is in yeah, a way yeah. like yeah. I've always been very geared towards achievement mm-hmm. and um, doing well in school and athletic and mm-hmm. I was always had something like that yeah. even at a very early age I was geared that way without anybody pushing me that way mm-hmm. and I think that has always prevented me from spending too much time in this sort of like I mean I don't even feel like I even have a chance to stroll down the lane anymore right you right know? so so you feel like I mean do you think that um, success and um, doing well is kind of um, maybe a way of being like it's your way of being special like you find your specialness sure, in that sure. and so it probably Absolutely. wouldn't feel special to you to be I don't know um lollygagging around yeah and actually i think uh to a point of that being unhealthy for me you know mm-hmm. meaning i should be more um and when i have the chance to do that i go wow i remember i used to do this right yeah um but i it, i recognize that person but i almost feel like i don't know that person anymore mm-hmm. um and it's interesting that I, in fact i think in many ways having what i'm doing has saved me from becoming that person or being that person all the time let's say that so your your jewelry your your business yeah just my business the, yeah. the response i mean of course it's not saying it's not to say that i don't sit around and complain about the things that i have to do <laughs> or that i don't you know do the whole thing of always thinking this is going to be better you know the whole mm-hmm. longing and, and the lacking piece mm-hmm. but it does sort of keep me oh god i've got a list of things to do and yeah. i got to do it yeah um and I think somehow subconsciously I know that that is a good thing for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of these energies that she's describing about, you know, people and lost loves and pulling people close and pulling away. I think when you can put it in something like your, the jewelry you're making or art or or music or whatever it is. Yeah. And then that's something that you put yourself into and then it, it, ha- it, it has its own life and that it, it becomes very important what that life looks like. And so that there's a whole world there that you can kind of, uh, all that energy can go there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like art can hold that in a mm-hmm. way that, I mean, I'm just grateful that I don't put it on Nathaniel um, because it wouldn't work. Like, I, mean, I don't think I ever... I was saying to him earlier today, I'm sh- I don't think I was ever the person that was looking for my lost lover. You know, I I think I was always looking for my lost self, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um I'm I think I'm always looking for some like 
the most me, me, and what that means. Mm-hmm. But I was never looking for the lover to to sh- to complete me or to be the and and so I'm grateful for that mm-hmm. because I think it would have made a really um, a, a really dramatic situation. Yeah, in fact, I remember at a very when I was young. Um, had graduated from college and I knew I wanted to move to New York Mm -hmm. because at the time I wanted to work in the fashion business Mm -hmm. and I had met somebody that I really liked and remember consciously thinking I'm not going to get attached to this person because I'm moving to New York Mm -hmm. so I really wasn't that person either yeah where I was looking for the I mean it certainly was longing and lacking and you know yeah oh if I could only be with that person or whatever at different times in my life but i I don't. I haven't felt that way for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, to where I don't. I never think in being with Walter. Oh, um, he's going to complete me or save me. Right. You um, don't have this dramatic push pull with him. No. 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 But I guess what I have been. No, I've, I've been trying to pay attention to it because I. I don't feel that I have this dramatic push pull. But I think sometimes Nathaniel's like. And I'm so like, I'm like, well, what is that? So for for me, I think it's maybe that intimacy piece where I think mm-hmm. I'm yearning for my most me, me, whatever the hell that means, and and he's along for that ride. And so sometimes, um, I guess the way I would put it is like in like embodied intimacy with him. Sometimes I'm just it's it's like when it's right in. When he just wants to stand there and love me and kiss me, sometimes I'm, it's almost like I'm hovering above it and I am uncomfortable almost with it because there, there's everything, there's everything in front of me. Right. Touching me and being with me and I'm like hovering around like a nervous mosquito. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that is probably... That is the push-pull. That's the push-pull. Yeah. 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 I remember reading once again somewhere about fours and Enneagram is that we we find that we're emotionally unreliable. Like we can't, mm-hmm. we're never sure how emotionally we're going to feel. And yeah. that is very true for me. Yes. I, one of the reasons why I have anxiety about going to parties. Right. Being in social situations. Yes. Um, with, especially with people I don't know. Yes. But even with people I do know. Right. I'm never quite sure who's going to show up. Yes. And so then I'm, I sometimes I, I can, I can feel that then I know that I'm not emotionally present mm-hmm. or available. And so then I'm feeling that pressure to become emotionally present and available. And so then yes. I'm self-conscious. Like it's this thing where I think that's where the introversion, where I can become introverted as a person where I'm not sh- I don't feel reliable. Yeah. Emotionally. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't either. I don't yeah. either. And, it can be confusing for Nathaniel, I think. Like, yeah. uh, he'll say, do you want to go to, you know, hear this music later? And I'll, I'll be like, sure. And then I, he goes somewhere and I start watching a movie and he's like <laughs> waiting, kind of waiting for me. And I don't realize he's waiting for me. And then he comes up and I'm kind of like, I'm not going to go, you know. And then he's like, why didn't you just tell me earlier and then I wouldn't have been downstairs waiting and eating dinner and thinking you were coming and and I, I think it's because I didn't even know myself I didn't realize 
that I had rolled on into this other place. And then he looked at me and realized I was there before I even did. Like, he's like, oh, you're, we're not going. We're not going. Look at you. And I'm like, what, what, what? You know? Well, in our case, he's very happy to stay home. Right, right. You know, it, it doesn't typically doesn't become an issue in fact i'm more likely the one to say we're going let's go yeah let's do something um but yeah i think when i find it most difficult is when i know that i have to be on or i have mm-hmm. to be speaking or i have to be um at a trunk show in front of people right um i i have always throughout my career um i in fact with my first partnership and my first business that actually became a problem where he was more than happy to be out in front of people mm-hmm. and even take the credit for things that he wasn't doing. And mm-hmm. I was happy to let him do that. Yes. Wow. That actually perpetuated that. Wow. Because I didn't really, I couldn't rely on myself to be present and available or to feel confident or to feel good about what I had done or, you know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like easy for me to just go, oh, that person's going to do it because he has no qualms doing it. Wow, yeah. So um, I think that is is one of the things that I've had to work through the most as a a business owner. And Mm -hmm. of course, one of the big problems is when you have employees, right? Right. Because they're looking for you to be a leader and to emotionally be in that headspace. Right. And I'm sure as a parent, that's got to be... I mean, I saw my mom as a four really struggle with that, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I can only... Now being an adult... Knowing who I am being a four, I look back at my mom and I have a lot more empathy for mm. her not being available. Yeah. Because I can imagine she had four kids, it's right? Just, well, you just, <laughs> sometimes you're just like, who, how did this happen? Like, who, why am I the person in charge of all these people? Like, this is not good. <laughs> and some days you just don't have it. And yeah. I mean, that's true. That's a universal truth. Yeah. But I think for fours, it's especially, you know, challenging. Yes. There's a fine line between living one's life as an artistic expression and becoming preoccupied with pain as a way of supporting an aesthetic self-image. There's kind of more of that. Um, loss, loss itself. Loss places one's, one outside the ordinary crowd. It makes one temporarily tragic and different and somehow special in the sense that for that time one feels more deeply than other people do. Mm-hmm. The experience of oneself as unusually sensitive can also develop into a tenacious attachment to personal moodiness, mm-hmm. particularly if loved ones happen to be attracted to intense displays of feelings <laughs> or if genuinely creative expressions well up during periods of emotionally charged sensitivity. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, tenacious attachment to personal moodiness. I definitely, I definitely feel that. I I mean, I think what I've called it in the past is feeling entitled to my feelings. And mm-hmm. I think that's a tenacious attachment to personal moodiness is a mm-hmm. another way to talk about that. Um, Do you feel as you've um, gotten older, that bubble has burst at all for you? And, and, and what I mean by that is I feel as though I've become aware mm. that... When whereas before I would have thought I'm more empathetic and more sensitive than other people, I've realized at times I'm more insensitive than other people. Exactly, I feel like they're so attached to each other. Those two, right. it's like they're 
this almost the same. Right. It's like I'm so invested in my sensitivity and maybe so intrigued by it that I'm missing so much. Right. Um, and I'm also judging and I'm also mm-hmm. setting myself apart. Um, mm-hmm. All those things which end up being super insensitive. Right. Yeah. And so then they're from once you kind of realize that you burst that bubble of that whole idea, that sense of self. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think when I, when I was young and Nathaniel and I started dating, he said that to me, he said, I know that you're really, you feel that you're very sensitive. So I know that you don't mean to do this, but when you walk into a party with all of your feelings, you are making everyone in the room uncomfortable and you need to cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, and I I, uh, I don't think I did quite it took me a long time to cut it out and it's not that I yeah but it's hard to really yeah, and see I mean, that yeah and it's like I don't know if I can ever completely cut it out but at least I'm at least I can see it and I think I've, I've said before like I, if I walk into a room I'm like decenter yourself right now mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. kind of what i say and of course the ego keeps finding new ways to fool you and thinking you can, that you're not doing for that. sure because like i can say decenter myself and in some weird way be centering myself by decentering myself if that makes any yes, sense yes. it's like you well know, it's like you're just, programmed and, and yeah. that program wants it's like the i always say that you know that thing where you if you ever rode horses and you start riding a horse and you stop paying attention to what that horse is doing, it always goes right back to the stable. Huh. You have to always keep it on track. And that's what exactly. you do as a person. Like the minute you take your eyes off what you're doing, you just go right back to the way that you... Right back to your... Core self. Your really. grooves. Your the grooves. Yeah. Um, the extreme poles of emotional life. Uh, and I feel this so intensely. I think... I mean, I, and I think it goes back to like average stuff, being afraid of average, being afraid of regular. And I, like I just, um, for my birthday, which I just had, I, I, I did a, a cacao ceremony and I had a few friends over and we had this ceremony and I, I didn't do it intentionally this way, but I was thinking about like, as a four, I'm weird about my birthday because it either is like, I either don't want to have it at all and I don't want anyone to look at me or notice me or call me or text. I like want to be invisible or I want everyone to just <laughs> uh, eat me up and love me to death and do and just, I want the impossible. Basically I want two impossible things and so I'm all is, is ordinary. The other is ordinary. Yeah. And so I'm always yeah. discontent and I'm always, Uh, longing and I'm always you know having weird feelings about not just my birthday but things in general and I thought like if I have this ritual then maybe I can even like set that intention into the ritual which I did and it and I think it kind of worked um because I just like said that right out of the gate in the circle we had and how I was gonna my goal was to just receive this as a regular moment and with people that I love and mm-hmm. let that be good and and everything you know but but just good and regular in a, in a, in a yeah. good way 
to I don't know. Average. Uh, yeah. And it was, of <laughs> course, like the no, of course, worst thing you could say. And of course, having a cacao ceremony not exactly average, on the right? floor in my dining room was not average. But it, it there was something about um, maybe having a ritual that was not really, I mean, it, it was me having it for my birthday, but it wasn't mm-hmm. really uh, about me. It was a ritual that pointed to something else. It's mm-hmm. pointed to, back to the mistiness we were talking about earlier. It's pointing to some mistiness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or some, some, if you want to call it the universe or whatever you want to call it, it, it was pointing somewhere else. And that gave me like room, I think to just be more comfortable receiving and just being there. Is it because on some level the the tension was somewhere else other than you? Like I, it was I mean in a in a way somewhere else. In a way well actually it's 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 weird. I actually asked in the circle for everyone to say like how they knew me because which made me uncomfortable to ask for that. Um because I was basically asking to be the center again, you know. But but I also I think there was something good about asking for that and just receiving it in a very yeah, non-dramatic way. Yeah, because I'm probably not that comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with it. No. Um, it's like I want to have all the drama, but then I want to deflect all of that real attention. So I had to, it's almost like I had to sit still. Still, I had to sit still for some intimacy yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm babbling on, but it no, was, no, that, it was that, helpful. That, that all resonates. So, let's see. Normal fours say that suicide comes up in their thoughts as an option for them if life starts to get too bad. Fours lean toward abiding, sarcastic, black humor, which reveals their inner anger. They describe suicide as a little something you can count on if life pushes back too hard. What they mean by this is that they think of bailing out as an option, very much like a two might think of seduction as an option, or an eight might imagine blowing someone away as an option (laughs) (laughs) without any deep-seated intention of acting it out. So I think that's super, super interesting to think of ways in which we, we bail out of our own life and that that two that fours can of course go to the blackest darkest place as a bailout and also where, that self-inflicted yes you know, and the that darkest, a two yeah. is seduction is a way of forsaking their their own life mm-hmm. and that eights having this extreme anger and taking it out on other people is this I, I just think it's interesting to think of that as a bailout. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never thought about that before. When I was 18, I remember I knew my dad had a loaded uh, handgun in his bedside drawer. And I remember going and getting it. And I went out into We kind of lived in this woodsy area. And I went out into the woods and I laid down in the leaves with the gun. And I had the whole this whole weird very like very involved fantasy of killing myself and then I think I and then I went and got in bed and put the gun under my pillow and like it's almost like the gun was my lover or something I was like sleeping with this gun my dad's gun 
I I think if I'm honest, I would have ne- I was not about to kill myself. I was not, but it was this elaborate fantasy and and playing out of mm-hmm. it. And it was it was strangely comforting it well, maybe was, to know that i had a bailout or that i could yeah. even think about a bailout mm-hmm. it's actually revealing um something that i've never told anybody i actually have used that in my life to fall asleep mm. so the idea of knowing i can kill myself allows me to go to sleep Wow. Like that is like a sleeping pill for me. Do you need to do that when things are really hard yes. and your your brain your own overdrive thinking of exactly. all these horrible like thoughts? When I, exactly when I'm really not sure how I'm gonna do whatever I'm gonna do or I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Or, yeah. And my brain won't stop, it becomes that thing where it's it exactly stop. Like, I'd never really heard somebody verbalize it that way, but yeah, me that, neither. Me knowing neither. that it's an option yeah. is what calms me. Yeah, I think it's true. Because it's like, okay, all this stuff that's so terrible, there's always a way out. There's always a way out, yeah. And it's funny that we go to that instead it's of, so weird. I could do this. I mean, I mean, honestly, it's not like I don't think of other things that I could do, but it allows, it's like a shortcut it's a, yeah. to getting beyond all, all mm-hmm. the craziness in my brain and just mm-hmm. going, oh, that's an option. And it calms me. Yes. It makes me realize I still have control. Yeah, maybe way. so, maybe so. But also I think it, it is, it's ever present in a four's life mm-hmm. on some level, this mm-hmm. idea of suicide as an option. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also ex- the extreme nature of our, of our um, feelings, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So it's, we, we consider everything. We consider everything. And right. I think that's. So to your point, it's not necessarily something that most of us would ever do. do. And, and Suzanne would would has often said to me that like a, a four is not afraid of considering it. So we consider it and don't do it necessarily. And a seven never considers it. But um <laughs> but but but, but often, it might actually do it. Yes. Um I mean that's that's a heavy thing to say, but um in her experience when sevens run out of all options the, the fact that they're unpracticed in having real darkness right. is more frightening. We're comfortable. We're more We're comfortable, comfortable with, with it darkness. because we live there more. Yeah. Yes. It's not in some ways, in an odd way, it's less frightening to us. Right. I think it's kind of what I was sim- similar to what I was saying before that when we are in an actual place of lack. Yeah. We're so used to feeling that way. We know how to behave in that exactly. situation. Exactly. And I think that's why when when people say fours can kind of um, be present to other people's suffering, I mean, I think that's where it comes from is because we're we're used to it. So when, when mm-hmm. people are dying and people mm-hmm. are having really hard times, we are not trying to fix it. We're just... Uh, we're just, um, we're she, just as she puts yeah. it, bear, we bear witness to it, which mm-hmm. I think is a nice way to say it. One extreme is suffering and the other extreme is fantasy of total fulfillment. There is not much experience with the range of feelings in between. I thought, a thought such as, do I love him, can attach itself so quickly to the imagining of what it might feel like to be utterly loved that there is no time to catch the real response to the question. 
A romantic in an empty room can get so caught up in her own reveries about what it felt like when he hurt me or what it will be like when he loves me that she can lose touch with how she feels about him in the present moment, which I think goes back to what I was saying earlier about like Nathaniel standing there kissing me and I'm like fluttering around because I, mm-hmm. yeah. But also that whole idea where we were talking about earlier of subverting your needs to other people Mm -hmm. you're so worried about how other people whether other people um like you or don't like you Mm -hmm. that you're not considering about whether or not you actually like them so true like you're once you and then that push pull is when they suddenly you find that you've got them and they like you you're something i never really liked them in the first place you didn't (laughs) you didn't really allow yourself to kind of consider that it's been helpful to me in my relationships when I want to go to someone with hurt feelings or a problem or something for Nathaniel or even my daughter to ask me well do you are you trying to draw them closer into you is that what you desire mom you know and I'm like usually I'm like no (laughs) so so then I just don't go to them so I don't tell them my feelings are hurt I don't have to resolve in fact most things I don't have to resolve because I'm there are very few people I want to pull in that close. You know right. what I mean? Right. And I think that's helpful. It's yeah. kind of freeing, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it applies to in all areas of life. It's one of the things that I've struggled the most with in business. Yeah. Which is, you know, um, does it matter to me if they like me? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I have a job to do. And mm-hmm. if everybody, you know, I mean... If you're doing your job, not everybody's going to like you. Right. But if you get caught exactly. up in that, in that piece all the time of, oh, what do they think of me? You're not considering whether they're actually doing what you need them to do. Right. So. Right. Which I think is obviously a, a problem that twos have, too. Yes. You yes. know, that's like in a different yes. way. In yeah. a different way. Yeah. Yeah. A single overdue phone call can attach itself to the feeling of abandonment in a very dramatic way. (laughs) And I react by over-amping and alienating the people that I most want to be with. It's like the pain attaches itself to all of my past pains and it becomes overwhelming. One late phone call can turn into a profound feeling of abandonment that will make me hate my friend by the time that the call comes in because I've been hurt so badly. I feel like I used I I feel like I'm better about that stuff but I think in my 20s I was really hardcore in that space Mm -hmm. um uh and I I was thinking about she goes on to talk about natural childbirth actually and and controlling pain and all this stuff about when you're in pain you kind of where you're not embodying it when it's right in front of you and I remember when I was having uh I had had Alabelle in the hospital and I wanted to have Henry at home and I did all of this work to make it possible for me to have Henry at home. And then I was, I went through labor all day and then when it was time to push him out, I literally was floating up above my head, having all of these out of body fantasies about all kinds of things other than what I was doing. And I did it for hours and um, finally my midwife was like if you do not buckle down to these contractions if you are not present to them if you do not progress 
uh, I'm going to take you to the hospital. Like I'm going to put you in the car and take you to the hospital. And so that she snapped me out of it. And then I became completely in my body and pushed him out in no time. But it, it just when in talking about this thing that fours do about all this longing and preparing and, and desire for romance and intimacy and all these things that we want. And then you're right exactly where you want to be. And then you're not there. It's just wild. Yeah. And it's so real. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Exaggerating real feelings effectively jettisons a genuine emotional life in favor of emotional intensity. I think that's a good sentence about, you know, exaggerating real feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and so I think, again, it's like you feel like you're so feeling, like you're having so many feelings and you're, your feelings are better or deeper or more than everyone else's when actually it's like, you know, you know, it's been really hard for me to realize that maybe I'm out of touch with my own feelings because I feel so like I'm the feeling person, you know, like I've mm-hmm. got the feeling mm-hmm. thing down and I actually don't. Well, it's like you were saying earlier about how you think what you want is to tell this person what you feel about what they did mm-hmm. and that that's the purpose of it. And, or, or you think that there's some purpose, I should say, to what yeah. you're doing and there's really no purpose to it, right? right? Like right. You're, you're not really aware of, of, you know, somebody else has to say to you, well, what are you trying to do? Mm-hmm. Actually, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it, it yeah. is, I mean, I feel like I've done that a lot. And Walter's probably listened to me go on and on. I know but it probably is not the word. He has listened to me go mm. on and on about stuff. And, you know, it's, taking me a long time to realize that I'm just going on and on about stuff. Yeah. Like there's not really any purpose to it. Yeah. Um, it feels so good though. <laughs> I, I like, I like to go on and on about stuff because sometimes I discover, I do feel Well, that, I mean the negative stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, clearly it, yes. it's different if you're talking about something that, it's discovery and there's some value to kind of the right. nuances. We love nuance. I right? love, I love to, I feel like going on and on about stuff is how I figure out how I feel about yeah, things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't want to sort Nathaniel. Of make it sound disparaging in and of itself, but what I was referring to in myself is it's when, I, when something, yeah, when something negative. has gone wrong Yes, and, and sort of going over the same thing. Yeah. It's almost and, like, I feel like I can change it or something by going over it. Yeah. It's true. It's kind of Or madness. legitimize myself. It's really kind of madness. It is madness. It <laughs> yeah. is madness. Let's see. The strangest thing is that although I've dreamed of our meeting, this is a story, another story. I am not really there when it gets played out. I seem to go away in my mind when we are together because I want to imagine him again so that I can be in bed with him and blank out that I'm there. (laughs) So that's just like more of that stuff. Like Uh It's just so weird that we do that. All I have to do is love him again is to imagine him gone, to think that we'll be separated soon and then I can be with him again. There's the belief that the real self will emerge through being loved, that the internal drama will lessen and that a very simple, satisfied person will emerge who feels whole and complete without the need to yearn for something more. Mm -hmm. Yes. She goes on to talk about like the rubber band relationship, which I guess is like, her way of talking about push pull, mm-hmm. um, 
It's a pattern that places the four in the position of being re-abandoned over and over and over again, but in a controlled way. So I think that's why I was asking you earlier if like that's maybe, sometimes I think our stories allow us to stay in that place of getting re-abandoned. And then, and so to I me... I think I've done that more in friendship. I've done I, it a lot in friendship. Yeah. I don't do it with Nathaniel. I don't know how the heck I got that figured out. I don't do but that with Walter, I d- I've yeah. done it. A lot of my girlfriends have experienced that. And I, I feel bad about it, you know. It's uh, it's weird. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the attachment to what I'm not getting in that relationship and not doing anything to change that. Right. But also now realizing that maybe that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it plays out in my life less in any sort of action reaction with the actual person mm-hmm. and more just in my own head. Yeah. yeah like, now I just, I don't really it, engage them in it. I'm I used to. Yeah. I used to. Yeah. Maybe when I was younger, I did. Yeah. When I was younger and when I was drinking, I used to involve my girlfriends in that whole process, the rubber band process. And I don't do it. I don't do it in my, but it still exists in my head for sure. Yeah. 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 It's the possibility of getting love is so linked to the possibility of abandonment that it is safer to reject rather than run the risk of another loss. Keep, mm-hmm. Keeping intimacy at a safe distance is an art form for force. Not too far, not too near. Talks about how we are not respectful of, of authority, but we kind of like things like Queen Elizabeth and that kind of thing. I guess it's about, I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> anyway, talking about refined authority versus pedestrian authority yeah i mean i think that's right less of less about authority and more about just what's what, refined what's refined right like the cops are not <laughs> like we don't have to be concerned about breaking those kind of rules really yeah i'm actually a rule follower you are you are okay i am and i mean i kind of think i'm well i don't sort know of a, i mean I'm, i tend to be would you say that um i mean i don't follow rules when it comes to I don't think art and design and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely I mean, sometimes not. maybe too much not. It's not the way, right? I mean, I think maybe you, I should more. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like you reinvented um, how stones are presented. You know, like you completely came up with a completely different way of stones. I mean, what's the right way to say that? Being set or... Yeah, being or, set. Yeah, yeah. Like, or, or yeah, almost I mean, like I don't not like, set. It's almost like a non-setting like set. in that regard, uh-huh. but I like it when people follow rules of decorum. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I have I mean, a weird... It's a weird mix, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm not even sure where all those lines are sometimes. Yeah, and of course, I'm then also critical of people that follow rules too much. And, exactly. You know. <laughs> And it would be very difficult to follow my rules. It would be <laughs> impossible. Uh, you know, impossible. It's like, I don't not mean, quite right. You didn't quite follow my rules. Right. <laughs> no matter what they do. Nope, it's not quite right. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, I laugh about it, but I think it becomes a real problem for people that I work with. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, some so a lot of times it's because I am so laser focused on things that don't matter to other people. Right. Um, and other times it's because I actually think I'm leading them on a goose chase a little bit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to admit that and I don't, I, I can't really see it, 
it just occurs to me sometimes that that mm-hmm. might be what I'm doing because I figure this poor person is having a hard time figuring out what it is I want them to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it can't just be them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm honestly have a hard time seeing how I'm doing that. Right. Which is, I think, still something I have to pay attention to more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, though, if the and... goose chase, like, I'm wondering if the goose chase is just a, is another intimacy piece. Like, I'm just, like, keeping it. Where you don't or the know. misty thing you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, the misty about, thing. Right? Like and we it, it just means you're you're not pinned down. And being pinned down makes it finite and it makes it boring. It makes it boring. It makes it makes it potentially pedestrian, like exactly. you said. <laughs> exactly. And so there's like if you never quite get it, it's it's Yeah, then it gets to be misty. Right. So like, Yeah. I like a, the whole concept of mistiness. I think it I've never heard that. I think I it's haven't funny. either. Um on the high side, fours are able to sense genuine talents and qualities of feeling in others. They see through an imitative or derivative presentation, as we were saying earlier. They understand the distinction between the best and the best known. They will turn a tacky presentation into something beautiful and unique and can see extraordinary possibilities in a common business situation. They become, on the low side, they become spiteful if not recognized. And do not like to be in a servile position or to work <laughs> in an ordinary setting. That's very true. Yes. Unless this is in the service of my real work as an artist or my true calling as a mystic. So it's just that's just funny stuff. That kind of language is, I think, the first language I ever heard when I was 18. That kind of stuff right there about... Mm-hmm. Um, Turn, you know, making things beautiful and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and that's what I think I latched on to a lot. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, Lee in, in our work together has tried to tell me that some fours don't maybe or don't have beauty as their, their piece, but it seems to me that in this chapter that Helen. I mean, it seems to well, me maybe it's beauty through music or beauty through, I mean, I guess something it wouldn't necessarily I think have to be physical it wouldn't have to be art or right. your interior design or whatever right. or your food but i do think that we are naturally geared towards those beauty that beauty and i remember reading again where we feel like we can save the the world could be saved through beauty yes and i do think it can be i, I do i do <laughs> yeah and i think kind of what that was saying earlier there is some truth to those beliefs that we have. Yeah. It doesn't hold all the truths that we think it does. And I think primarily because not all people respond to beauty, but I think we you also think, have... You don't think they do? I think, I think they, that... I think they all I, people do. Yeah, I, I, but not all people... That's not their priority, I guess. Yes. Or maybe maybe a better way to put it is they don't realize that, right? Yes. And so it's hard to get people to, to see that. Mm-hmm. But we see that in our own lives, how mm-hmm. when we do something, how people respond to it. Mm-hmm. And also how sometimes um, people act differently in a in a beautiful environment right. versus another. Right. Um, so it, it's hard for us to understand why other people don't see it. But right. I definitely, I definitely relate to that idea where I start there, mm-hmm. and how that also becomes a problem in terms of um, putting that above things right. that sometimes matter more or right. in that moment matter more. Right. Um, maybe it's like where the beauty is coming from or why it's coming. Like 
maybe it maybe we learn early on that if we make things beautiful people will respond and then that's a quick that's like a cheap way to special and we get attached to it and we but start I remember as a kid especially when I was younger I had a reaction to beauty yes that had nothing to do with anybody else a hundred percent. You know what I mean? So it 100%. wasn't about being special. I yes. honestly was like, I could lose myself in yes. things that were artistic or beautiful. Or I just, I was, I did actually have a visceral reaction. Yes. It does save you. It, do, it did. It wasn't, it wasn't a, that was the, probably the most honest thing about me. Absolutely. So there, there definitely is. So, but I, I guess what I'm saying is, is in, in that core I think it is our gift. I think we can offer that and it's our gift. And then I think it's also what we get um, tripped up on is that we, that beauty that saves, we sometimes can uh, start, we weaponize it without realizing we're weaponizing it by putting it above people, putting Mm -hmm. it above relationships, putting it above humility. but there's a drug quality to it for us. Perhaps so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I have. Also, I, like maybe, maybe beauty is longing, like that mm-hmm. misty thing mm-hmm. that we're talking about, which we could say is, um, you could say it's yeah, a desire for union or a desire for mm-hmm. God or a desire for Mother Earth or whatever you want to say. But it fills I, that abandonment. It fills part of us that fills the, that the, hole. The mystical union mm-hmm. fills the hole, mm-hmm. and so I think when beauty, when we use beauty like a drug to fill the hole, instead of beauty being an honest manifestation of the journey, like the or joy or yeah, yeah or just the, the I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I think. It, like I, th- I just think it's both. I think we we can offer beauty from this this place of honesty, and we can also use it in a way that that is consumeristic or materialistic or elitist or you know right right yeah yeah right. It's like an imbalance. Yes. Fours delight in getting away with it. They like the thrill of secret mischief and playing at the edge of scandal. There is an excitement in courting disaster and being eccentric or difficult and therefore getting special treatment. Being difficult also satisfies a kind of masochistic need to be revealed as that flawed and despicable child who is still unworthy of being loved. These feelings of unworthiness are coupled with an angry wish to even the score with people who appear to be getting more out of life. I feel like that sentence sums up a lot of... A lot of everything for us, you know? I mean... Mm -hmm. That inner battle, that inner... Well, this... So we're we're eccentric and we're special and we're difficult. And all of that is covering up this unworthiness. Um, It also feeds our belief in being unworthy. Because as long as we're acting like that... We continue to... We continue to know that we're unworthy. That's the way we... Right. Yes. That definitely sounds more like myself as a teenager, Mm -hmm. 20-something-year-old. Yes. Are you dying? Are y'all dying? 
I'm just thinking he may never talk to me again. <laughs> 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 he may be like, how quickly can I get out of this room and right. um, head for the hills? Well, so one thing I wanted to say is that the compulsion to be extraordinary can be easily mistaken for refinement and or taste and aesthetic sensitivity. And the fear of abandonment can be sidestepped by discounting the importance of those whose tastes are less refined. Um, so I think that's a good way of talking about what I was trying to say earlier about beauty mm-hmm. being can go either way. But also, I kind of it makes me wonder if the compulsion to be extraordinary. I mean, I guess every number probably has that to a degree. That what is compelling us neurotically is also kind of has this good side to it, and mm-hmm. it kind of makes me wonder about people who are always striving to make art and where that comes from. Um, well, I, I don't know if you've ever thought, of, I mean, obviously you, you have. I look at other artists all the time, especially artists that I perceive to be a different number and see how they create, mm-hmm. create art and what they do. And <clears throat> I'm always envious of those artists who sort of get up every day and all day long create their art, all day long every day. Yeah. Not because they're getting to do it more than me, because I'm having to do it, but because they seem it seems to be so intrinsic to them, mm-hmm. and they're content in that, mm-hmm. and it's not a struggle, or it's not a, not. The, I mean, I. I think it probably it probably is, is but I there's a it... certain sort of like they do it like they eat and breathe, um, and maybe I'm just perceiving. That I think you're just perceiving maybe, it because maybe. I think um, sometimes people. Um, I've had a few friends like say they kind of feel that that's where I'm coming from and it's that I'm just getting up and doing it every day and it's so fun and it's so great and it's so free and all that and I hate it because it's not true and and of course you you have to get in I mean you can't really get into the whole like we are getting into it right now like all of this stuff we're saying is what is in your brain all day and you're in order you're creating and is a way of off-gassing all this and like making something out of it yeah. that's real and the action of it is the most important things for us as for exactly force because um, we are so apt to get an inaction yes up in our head and thinking mm-hmm. about it daydreaming about it mm-hmm. and not actually doing it right or coming up with all the reasons why it's not going to be great right um it's not gonna be special it's enough. not gonna be special enough right or not be recognized as being special yes it's equally dangerous for me if a situation gets too predictable or quiet. I want to break the mood by saying something shocking, which gets my message across that I think the conversation is a bore. And also my kind of attempt to draw out some special stranger who would instinctively recognize that I was trying to upgrade the level of a poor conversation. <laughs> I have definitely, I do that all the time. I'm sorry to admit, but it's true. I do it, I mean, I think I, hopefully I do it less now. But I catch myself feeling I'm in a situation that's boring and I'm like, that you're, that's your ego and you just need to, you know, if yeah. you try to save this from being boring, then it, it'll just make you look like an asshole. Yeah. So don't, yeah. so don't do it, Elizabeth. Yeah. But I do, I, 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 I think this is a true statement. It's, embar- it's embarrassing. Yeah, I think it is too. I think I do it maybe in a different way where I can almost realize at a certain point I've been going on about something and it's like I'm dominating the conversation mm-hmm. and I'm not reading the room. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it's coming from that place that you mentioned. Like, let me just change energy here and yeah. make it, let me, I'll add some texture right now. Yeah. 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 And then what it's like, and thinking and that, thinking that people want it. Like I think, yeah. Let me just give you a spoonful of this because I know you want it. <laughs> and it's like it's it's painful to realize people don't want that spoonful. No, no. I I think everybody wants it. Yeah. They don't want it. But if you've been that person, yeah. You how do you recalibrate in the social situation to be somebody different? Because yes. you, I think, for a four, it can become then you almost completely withdraw. Yes. Because you don't know how else to I be. overcorrect. Right. I, exactly. I overcorrect and get all like, like I was saying before, it's the poles of emotion. So I, it's like, let me give you a big spoonful of me. And then the opposite of that is, let me give you nothing. And I'll right. just sit here and ask you right. questions all night long and, and have you answer them. And I will give you nothing of myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. Yeah. It's again, I think a little bit tied to that emotional thing where you can't rely on who you are, who you're going to be that night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, which makes me nervous sometimes, especially around people I don't know. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, envy is fueled by the belief that others are enjoying an emotional satisfaction that is being denied to oneself. Unaware fours will try to ease feelings of deprivation by a change of scene, by adornment, or by surrounding themselves with lovely things. The search for depth of meaning often misleads a four into the belief that lighthearted relationships are lightweight and therefore not worthy of consideration. Mm -hmm. There's a great attraction to people who are caught up in the most intense human experiences, mm -hmm. such as birth, death, Encounters with the dark unconscious. Yes, yes. Do you feel that? I feel intensely that way. And I have to work on it. I mean, one of the things I say to myself is like, all that, all that is shiny is not gold. Because I kind of think that, I think that these intense experiences are, or maybe maybe I should rephrase that and say, all that is intense is not good. <laughs> I want to say the thing that has changed about me is I... Because I know that about myself, I almost have gone the opposite direction mm. where I almost disdain, not disdain is harsh, too harsh of a word, but I, I kind of, I've kind of almost become averse to emotion at all, mm. um, where I don't trust intense uh, emotional situations like that. And I, and I kind of will find myself judging other people for getting into it too much. Mm -hmm. um, like almost too reserved. Yes. Maybe that's the counter type. So do you think that's it? the self-press for? I think so. But so how did, how does that, um, I guess that's where I'm super interested. Like what, how does that, how do you think you got there? Like how does that, how does it happen that what is your natural proclivity to be seen and be special mm -hmm. and express gets subdued into uh, non kind of this very calibrated like yeah it's, appropriate. it's interesting um, there I've, I've seen that switch in my life as mm -hmm. time has gone on I think it is partly from trauma mm -hmm. um, 
I think it's partly from my my first relationship and my first business where I saw somebody who was intensely emotional about things that didn't matter or that was sort of taking me on a ride Mm -hmm. that I couldn't control. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I've, if I'm not a counter four, I've almost like taken on that side of my fourness Mm -hmm. more. And I don't, I'm not very, I'm where I'm self-indulgent is in these sorts of ruminations and stuff, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I'm not self-indulgent and sort of, um, believing in mystical things. I've become very pragmatic interesting, and okay. very not like uh, I've, very analytical uh-huh. and not um, sort of believing in astrology or any of those kinds of yes, things. Yes. I like, I'm a very fact based person Okay. now okay. in a way that I wasn't when I was younger. Does it feel safe? Does that feel probably yeah. some of it's safe? Um, some of it is, I think, knowing that some of those things weren't working for me, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't serving me, but I think it's probably more from that perspective. Or do you, or like pragmatism is like a form of um, equanimity, maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I think some of it's healthy. I think some of it's um, a way to, to perform mm-hmm. and to show up every day and do my mm-hmm. job. And I think a lot of it is informed by this, this, Sometimes what it feels like a burden, other times it feels like a responsibility, you know, knowing I have to, to, to be there to do stuff. I, I do think that has been a change in me yeah. that I've observed. And in some ways I've liked, yeah. in other ways I feel even more disconnected to my feelings. Mm. Um, yeah, it's because I see other fours who are, who are still able to express themselves in, like I found it harder to express myself in a group of people. I subvert my emotions, mm. um, unless my emotions coming out about something that it's actually not about, like, uh, something kind of depersonalized or right. Yeah. Like making it about something other than what I'm actually yeah. feeling. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think I'm definitely, um, this, more almost pragmatic almost taking on the attributes of a three mm, yes yes in a way that is not real for me right that makes sense yeah no it does actually it's more I've, armor that i put on to do what i'm doing yes well and, i do think there's some three energy that helps us do and the doing is the healing for us and i do mm-hmm. think there's i do think there's medicine there for sure yeah i do yeah I mean, it's certainly, it's more productive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. Sometimes I'm chasing my tail. And sometimes I'm, the, the part of me that's not a three, mm-hmm. which I, you know, this is the problem with being a four sort of in the role of a three is that ultimately we, I'm making decisions that are always going to be more difficult for me and require more work than what a three is going to do. Right. Right. Three is sort of going, what's the easiest way from A to B? Right. And I might skip even some of the steps that are necessary and I'll fake it till I make it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fake it till I make it person. Yeah. If I know that I'm, I'm back there figuring right. out all these things, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything the hard way. Right. And so that difficulty, do you, does it ever feel masochistic? Or, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it doesn't feel like 
while I'm doing it that I'm intentionally doing it to be masochistic. But when I look back, oh, why did I go through all that? Why didn't I just... So do you think like the um, going through all the steps and making everything difficult is... It's a, it's a pragmatic... It feels like a pragmatic suffering instead of a mystical suffering. Probably. It's like I'm doing it probably because I don't want it to be pedestrian. Right. Like I don't believe in, I don't trust the thing that came naturally and I've got to make it more difficult. Right. And then I'm doing it all myself. That's the sort of masochism thing. Mm -hmm. But it's also, um, uh, yeah, the pragmatic piece of it is this is how I keep moving forward. Right. And I'm not going to think about how I can do this in an easier way because that feels too average. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So you yeah. kind of, as a four in that in that path in that vein, you're you're just taking on so much. Yeah. All the time, and people are looking at me like, "You're going to do all that? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, whatever it is I'm doing. Yes. Yes. And I spend countless hours. Yes. Making things just right. Yes. I it occurs to me sometimes that I'm sort of engaged in the process more than I am in the result. I think that's sort of beautiful, though. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's healthy as yeah. an art maker. It's definitely a mixture of things, right? Yeah, it's, sure. It's, it's sure. definitely not all masochistic, and it's not all impractical, and it's not. It's like, but I find it's sort of like um, if if getting through the forest to the other side, a three would see. Okay, I see the light right through there. I'm gonna go right through. Yeah. I'm going to just go off the path because I think that that experience is going to make the other side more interesting. Totally. You know, and there's some truth to that. Yes. But then I can also (laughs) just keep hitting myself. I can keep doing that forever. Yes. Yes. With a million iterations. Yes. I think that's great. That's a great image. Yeah. I like that image. So it's like, when do you, you as a four, when do you stop that? Yeah. It's, I think there has to be a, it has to be Definitely. a balance, I think, because some of the wandering is where it's we good. get our texture and it's yeah. where we get our art. Yeah. Um, um, a person who feels chronically deprived might first sense the connection to essence as a moment of complete belonging, moments that remind one of being held in the safety of a mother's arms or the surrender of one's being to the hope of an enduring love. I, I mean, I know you, you said you've kind of given up on mystical concerns. I don't, but I mean, when I read that sentence, that complete belonging, I think, I think uh, back to what I've been talking about, about embodiment. Mm-hmm. And when I, and um, when I was in Brazil, like one of the, the things, the mantras that kept coming to me is that like belonging is not visual and, and it, it ha- it's something that I have to feel inside myself. And so that was super helpful to me because it took my belonging out of all these things I was talking about earlier. Just like making things look pretty and special and fluffing around. And it's just like I had to just stop and feel it in my bones. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that belonging is there. That it's that kind of experience. And by belonging, do you mean being in the moment right now and being okay with whatever is around you at that moment as opposed to having to try to yes, make it special. I think belonging is probably my way of talking about a deep sense of embodied contentment or union with presence. 
um, union with presence or the present moment or um, just uh, being, just allowing experience to be a flow of experience rather than something that I'm worrying about, fixing, engaging with. Controlling. Controlling. Um, regretting, you know, all those things. So that, that, um, yes. Um, like all of the higher impulses, balance is an embodiment. So back to that, rather than a thought or an idea about what it would be like to be fully satisfied. It depends upon being able to stabilize attention in the present and feeling the satisfaction of having enough. Embodying the virtue of equanimity begins with strengthening the capacity for self-observation to the point where one is able to recognize when attention drifts off to the past, the future, the distance, or the hard to get. Fours will experience equanimity when they are able to gently return their awareness to the present and pay attention to the bodily satisfaction that is here. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, I mean, that's she. That's her way of putting it. But mm-hmm. um, equanimity is our virtue, and I think it's like very, very hard to find <laughs> contentment. Yeah. But I think it is about about presence and, and trying to unattach all these things mm-hmm. that we've been talking about from our experience. Yeah. I saw, I saw him poke his head through that thing. And thing. And he's like, what are they doing? I'm sorry this is so long. I'm afraid that like by tackling Helen Palmer's book, I'm like tackling too much because her chapters, like when I did Claudio Naranjo's books, his chapters are really short. Uh-huh. And so like you can do it in a podcast and kind of get through it. And then, but Helen's to get through hers in a conversation is kind of a huge, it's a huge thing. Well, but I do a, like her language. I, I think she... She made me think about all these things in brand new ways that I've never thought about it before. Good. So, me yeah. too. I, I have mean, to, I'm, I'm I not just, that academic about it anyway, so it's not like I, I know just enough to be dangerous, but, <laughs> but, I, but hearing, you know, all those things resonated with me. Yes. And I've read some of those things, but she's saying some of those things in a new way that exactly. helps me understand what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Yes. So that was helpful. Good. I appreciate you sitting with me for so long. I appreciate all your insights. Thank you.